What we're doing, if you are a visitor, is we're going through the Gospel of Mark. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. It's in the New Testament section of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to Mark. Mark chapter 14. And we'll be picking it up from verse 32. Mark 14 from verse 32. Make sure you do have a Bible in front of you so you can see where we're getting this from. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump straight into this passage. Mark 14 verse 32. You may have noticed we haven't read it yet. That's because it's quite a long passage we're going to look at today. So I'm going to read it as we go along and work through it together. Let's pray. God, Baptism is all about the promises that you make. Now we want to delve into the Bible, we want to look at it, and we want to see what is it you're actually saying? What is Jesus really on about? Help no one here to be gullible. Help us to be open-minded, not narrow-minded. Help us to think, ask questions. Help us to listen. And as we do that, will you, Jesus, speak to us, we pray. Amen. Alright, people often ask me this question. Uh, In fact, I get asked this all the time. Why did you give up practicing law to become a Bible teacher? And the other question I get asked all the time is, why did I give up modeling? But the reason I gave up law... To become a, I've got a couple of trendy little answers. My trendiest answer is because grace is so much better than law. Grace is so much better than law. And quite frankly, the reason I gave up being a lawyer is because I discovered grace. And I became a Christian. And, and for me, grace was the greatest thing I'd ever heard of. or I'd never understood it up to that point. So I guess that's one of the factors. But really, there was a combination of factors that made me uh, stop being a lawyer and and go into full-time teaching the Bible. And there's a lot of factors, but one of them was a particular trial that I did. I was involved in a horrible, horrible matter, and it really cut me deep. The bottom line was I defended a colonel in the police force. So he was very high up, very senior officer in the police force. And the bottom line is, and I can't give you all the details, uh, I can, but I can't because it would take up too much time, is that he snapped. I guess that's the best way of explaining it. And there was a fight at the police canteen, uh, and you're never going to believe this, it was about tablecloths. And you know what he did? One evening, he jumped in his car, he drove down, not far from where Naomi and I actually lived, he took a pump-action shotgun, he walked up, he parked his car, he walked up the driveway of a residential house, like anywhere in Kingsley, with a pump-action shotgun, he shot the family dog, he shot the door, so it blew open, he walked in, he killed the father, he killed the mother, he killed a sister, a brother, and a little 12-year-old guy, dived through the dining room window and ran away and jumped over a neighbor's wall. He wasn't content with that. He went round and he blew up the bodies. He just kept going until it was an ugly mess. And 
when he walked down the driveway, this was about six in the evening, the neighbours saw him and he just looked at them. Jumped in his car and he drove off. He went and sat in a sugarcane field with his gun. There were helicopters, when the music, etc. And finally the police begged him over the radio, because he had a radio in a police car, to come in and hand himself over, which he did. Then the police phoned me and asked me if I will take the case. And I appeared before him on bail application. And it, it started, it was towards the end of my time as a lawyer. And this was the big one. This was the time when I was on the front page of the newspaper. My career, I was just thinking, ka-ching, my career is taking off. I'm in the big lights. And that trial was one of the reasons I left law, because it made me sick. What I saw sickened me. It made me lots of money. It was the start of what could have been a successful career, but it was hollow. It was empty because what happened was we went for a particular defense, post-traumatic stress disorder. That was our defense and it resulted in a temporary uh, episode of insanity. That was our uh, kind of like extreme sickness where what happens is your mind throws you back into a conflict situation. That's where you think you are. So you're not responsible because you're not really there. That was our argument. Obviously, we couldn't argue on the facts of the matter, because we were gone. Everyone saw what happened. So there was no ways we could argue that we didn't do it. But the minute you go down this type of defense, you go into a minefield of legal intricacies. I can tell you, it's so complicated. Basically, it's our psychiatrist versus your psychiatrist. And I remember driving up to top, top psychiatrists, spending two days from morning till night. Uh, I also had a Queen's Council on the case, which is the highest ranking. And the Queen's Council and I, I can remember grilling psychiatrists for two days. Just the first one. Is it possible? Could this have happened? How did this? And the whole thing became a fiasco. Our psychiatrist, which we paying big bucks to, and your psychiatrist, which is an arbitrary state psychiatrist, there's a reason you're a state psychiatrist, because you're not doing well in your business. Um, I mean, that's how it is. Uh, and so it wasn't fair. And by the time we got to the, there's the judges, three of them with their wigs and gowns and all of us on our gowns, and we're fighting, this trial was scheduled for three weeks. I will remember standing in court, talking to the other legal, and every day is restaurants, lunch, BMWs, Mercedes, Benzers, and talking about golf and what time do you think we'll finish today because I reckon I wouldn't mind a quick round of nine holes. And, and in one of those conversations, I turned and looked and there was a 12-year-old little boy who didn't have a mommy, didn't have a daddy, didn't have a brother, didn't have a sister, didn't have the family dog. And he came every day to that trial and he sat right at the back and where we were all about due process and legal argument, and we were all about, this is doing my career good, and that prosecutor's thinking, oh, this could launch me, and that guy thinking this, and every day walking out, reporters, photographers, what's this question, what's that, you know, how's the case going? There sat a little boy who just wanted to know the truth. For us, the trial became about politics. The truth was up to the judge. That's his job. Our job's not the truth. We're out here to do what's best for our client. 
but a little boy just wanted to know the truth. And the reason I start with that kind of emotional story is because as I was looking at this passage in front of us, we've got here the ultimate trial. Here is the case of God on trial. This is the ultimate courtroom drama written down here for you. Because the person on trial is the person, Jesus, who claims to be God. And while everyone is politicizing, and you'll see it as we go through it, and everyone's got an ulterior motive, I'm begging you to be like that little boy and just want to sit there and know the truth. You see, you might be sitting here going, okay, this was always going to be the boring part, but I'll pull through because coffee's coming up just now. Well, imagine if you were diagnosed with a sickness. Imagine if you were diagnosed with a horrible sickness that was going to result in your death. And you discovered this tablet in a purple box. I think purple because I take men's health Swiss tablets. So that's what I got in my head. Pretend there's a purple box of tablets. And you take one of those tablets every day and it's going to cure you. And then you read the papers. The pharmaceutical company that made those tablets is on trial for fraud and corruption. Tell me if you wouldn't be interested in the outcome of the case. You've got a vested interest. Now in this trial in front of you, it's true, no one in your family has been shot. It's true, you're not on drugs. It's not a pharmaceutical company. But a man is on trial who says that you will die and stand in front of him. I'd want to know if he's got the truth or not. The man who's on trial here says you have got a disease. It's called sin. And he says that sin is going to take you to hell. That, I'm just telling you what he says. The man who's on trial here says that he can give even little James. He can give James life after death. I'd say I'd want to know what the outcome of that trial is. I'd want to know if this guy's telling the truth or not. In other words, I'm trying to say that if you're a homo sapien, that is, if you're a human being here this morning, you've got an interest in this case. Because this guy said some pretty outrageous things. If he's proved to be a liar, see ya, I'm off to the beach. But if he's telling the truth, well now. And so I want to take you through this quickly. There are four scenes of this courtroom drama. We're going to go through them quickly. The first one will be up there for you. Thanks, Julie. Have a look, verse 32 to verse 42. Jesus fights the temptation to avoid crucifixion. Look at verse 32 to verse 42. Hopefully you're all there. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Can you just turn this down a little bit there? Thanks, guys. Paul, thanks. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little bit further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And again he went away and prayed, saying the very same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to him, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. First of all, Jesus fights the temptation to be crucified, and wouldn't you? So look at what we read in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. That's a, that's a word that means oil press. Actually, if I must be honest, I've been there. It's a little grove of olive trees. And it's called Gethsemane, which ironically means oil press. It's where you squeeze things so that oil comes out, i.e. olives, by the way. So there's a little bit of irony. Now look what happens. He said, sit here while I pray. Now here's something interesting. There are only three occasions, two other times, where Jesus is recorded as praying. Only two other times. And in all three of those occasions, one, two, three, Jesus prays when he faces the temptation to not be crucified. The first occasion is when he feeds the 5,000. And you know what happens when you give people food or tax deductions? They vote for you. And so everyone said to Jesus, will you be the king? And Jesus turned and went and prayed. Because what is the temptation? To be a king without dying, without being crucified, without going through the cross. The other temptation was when he was healing people and crowds were coming and the whole revival ministry was going nuts. And the disciples say, this is awesome. And Jesus leaves and goes and prays. In every time that he's tempted to not go through the cross, he prays. And that's what's going on here. Why is Jesus sit here? I'm going to go pray. And look what he says, verse 33. He took with him Peter, James and John. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Have you ever felt like that? I mean, that's I'm so down. I'm so sad. I just want to die. I think I'm going to die. Remain here and watch. And going a little bit further, he fell on the ground. He's collapsing. He's just collapsing. And prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. What's this about? The hour, of course, is the hour of his crucifixion. Jesus has spoken about this often, all throughout Mark's Gospel. The hour is the time that he is going to hang on a cross. And actually, Jesus said, this is why I've come to the planet. I've come to planet Earth to hang on a cross. That's my hour. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why? Why does Christianity spend so much time talking about the death of its founder? One third of Mark's Gospel is devoted to the death of Jesus. Who cares how Muhammad died? Who cares how Buddha died? Their teaching remains. Timeless truth. Why do Christians make such a fuss about the death of Jesus? Why do Christians carry a cross, which is an instrument of torture, around their necks? Why don't they carry an electric chair? Why do Christians make such a fuss about the hour? The hour has come. 
The answer is because what Jesus did for us is even more important than what he teaches. In other religions, what the founder teaches is of all importance. Follow the teaching. Christianity is about what Jesus did for us that we couldn't do. It's not about what he tells us to do. It's about what he did that we can't do. Well, Dwayne, what is it that he does for us? What, what does Jesus do for you? Look at verse 36. And he said, Abba, which means dad, daddy, father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What's the cup? Remove this cup from me. What a funny way to talk about dying. We talk about kick the bucket. Do you think that's the same thing? Cup, bucket? No. It's a very particular word. Julie, thanks. Look at what the Old Testament says. The cup represents God's anger, God's judgment. For thus says, this is the prophet Jeremiah, long ago, for thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. The cup represents punishment from God. Isaiah 51, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. One plus one equals two. Thanks, Julie, you can go back. I mean, forward. What we're being told is the cup represents God's judgment, God's anger. So why is God grumpy? <laughs> why is God angry? The Bible teaches us again and again that God is good and that our selfishness and the way we treat each other and the way we treat God and the way we ruin the planet, those things make God angry. And the Bible teaches that God is going to rid this planet of evil one day. And therefore, he is angry. The Bible teaches that his anger hangs over us, that we are going to, we all know this. Because if you sit just for two seconds, your conscience will tell you, our own consciences condemn us. How much more the perfect God. The Bible teaches we're under his judgment. And here's the astonishing thing. What's happening in verse 36? Jesus is going to take the anger of God the judgment of God, and what's he going to do? He's going to down the whole thing. He's going to drink it in our place. He's going to cop the flack instead of us. He will soak up God's judgment upon himself in our place. And you might be sitting there thinking, hooray for Jesus. Gee, God's grumpy. Well, verse 36 tells us this was God's will. Look at verse 36 again. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This was God's will. When Jesus said, oh please, do I have to die on a cross? God said, yes, because I love Dwayne. Because I love you. It's the love of God that sent his son into the world to die that we might live. Jesus had to do this. There is no other way. 
Because we're too weak. Ah, why do you think we're too weak? Well, look at how the story carries on. Yes, Jesus. He's fighting this cosmic battle, the judgment of God. He's going to take it upon himself. What's man doing? Yes, have a look. 37. He came and he found them dozing. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Do you even know what's going on here? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Again he came and found them sleeping. And, he didn't, uh, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? Take your rest. It's enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed into hands of sinners. Rise. Let's be going. See my betrayer's hand. What's the point? Can't you see the contrast? Jesus is the man amongst men. He's fighting. He's going to take upon himself the judgment we deserve. And what are we doing? We're fast asleep. The weakness. By the way, this is Peter, the rock. Eh? This is the pathetic, really. What we've been showing is that we're so weak. And Jesus nails it. He says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't we all know that? I'd love to be good. I'd love to fix up. The, I'd love to treat my wife better. I wish I was a better father. I wish I was a better child. I wish I was a better... I wish. I just can't. Because the flesh is weak. That's why Jesus had to come and fight for us. And he had to die the death we could never have died. And live the life. So I wonder how many of us here are asleep still. Fast asleep. Jesus is fighting this cosmic battle, but we're fast a doze. I don't, yeah, that's all cool, Dwayne. But me and the big man upstairs, we'll, we'll sort it out when I get there. Boy, are you asleep. You haven't woken up yet. Christianity is about turning to Jesus and trusting entirely in his death. You know Oscar Wilde? Oscar Wilde heard a talk just like this. Jesus taking the punishment I deserve. And he jumped up. And he said, I'll pay for my own sins, thank you very much. And he walked out. What's Oscar Wilde doing today? He's still paying for his own sins. Who would be so silly? So, scene one, Jesus fights for the temptation to avoid Christmas. Now, here's the question. Is it true? Is it really true? Well, let's go to trial. Let's see if it's true. Let's go to the next one, Julie. Jesus is betrayed and arrested in accordance with the scriptures. I'll go quicker. Have a look at verse 43 onwards. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Ooh, that hurts, eh? One of the twelve. One of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs for the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Lead him away unto God. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and <laughs> cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left him. And they fled. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is betrayed and arrested in accordance with the scriptures, which is the Old 
Testament. Now the amazing thing, I don't have time to pick it all up, is that Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. Isn't that amazing? That is human nature. We betray Jesus with our lips. We pay him lip service. We give him homage. Oh, Jesus, he was a good man. Jesus, maybe he was even a prophet. Maybe he wasn't that dumb. We pay lip service. But our hearts are miles away from him. Our hearts think he's totally irrelevant. If I look at my life, Jesus was a great guy. My life says he was an idiot. You had nothing important to say to me. We betray him with our mouth. It's the same thing. The astonishing thing is they come, look at verse 47, they come with swords and clubs and one of Jesus' friends whips out a sword and chops off the high priest here, who we know from history, his name is Malchus. What's Jesus' response? Jesus' response is, I was with you in the temple, look at verse 49, everyday teaching. My kingdom doesn't come with swords and clubs. You've come to arrest a robber. Muhammad fights for his kingdom. He leaves horses and cavalry to conquer Mecca. Islam is through violence. It's a legitimate way of spreading Islam. My kingdom is not like that. It comes through teaching and preaching. You come looking for impressive soldiers with big biceps. Instead you get a Bible teacher. Unimpressive. Because my kingdom is through preaching and teaching. And notice what's driving the show. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. The Bible, the word of God is driving the show. You come with swords and clubs and spears and and if it was in our day, AK-47s or whatever. The truth of the matter is the Bible is still driving agenda. Look what Jesus says. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Have a look at this, Julie. I mean, it's astonishing. You've got to help me here. This is the scriptures, Zechariah, Psalm. These are Old Testament scriptures. Look how they drive the show. These were written hundreds of years before Jesus was arrested. Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's written a hundred years before Jesus. Eight hundred. No more. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, Psalm 55, talking about how Jesus is betrayed. And this is the prophet Zechariah. I mean, someone help me here. How did this happen? Does anyone know how this happened? Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it to them in the house of the Lord. That's a prediction of exactly how much Judas would betray Jesus for. 30 pieces of silver. Written hundreds of years. The Bible is driving the agenda. That's why Jesus lets himself be arrested. So that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 51, I'll throw it in here quickly just to entertain you. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him and he ran away naked. Why don't you just go to the, yep. By the way, I'm not going to dwell on that, but that's uh, author's signature. That's Mark. Mark's the only one who records that. That shows us that what you're listening to is history. This is authentic. It's not myth. This is what happened, guys. I'm not even going to tell you what happened to me one day. I ran away with no clothes on. But it's in there because it's got the hallmarks of history. 
Thirdly, nearly done. Jesus, let's come to the trial. Jesus is tried by the religious authorities. Look at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. All the chief priests, the elders, the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, which is a bit sad, and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony didn't agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony didn't agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and he made no answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the gods received him with blows. So first of all, Jesus arrested. And now scene three, he's taken to trial in front of the religious leaders. Notice it's the high priest, the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. In fact, everybody has come together. The whole religious establishment is against Jesus. Religion always opposes Jesus. We know that from the Bible. Religion is always opposed to Jesus. And you're all nodding your heads going, yes, that's why I'm not religious. Of course you are. Everyone's got a code that they live by. Everyone's got rules and procedures, little things they will do, little things they won't do. And if that's how you live, chances are you're opposed to Jesus. All religion is opposed to Jesus. If Jesus isn't the way you shape your life, then you're probably religious, some way or another. But what I want to show you is look at the prejudice. Look at verse 55. Now the chief priests, the whole council were, watch this, verse 55, were seeking testimony against Jesus. Now this is astonishing. Do you really think people are neutral? Who thinks people are objective? You just have to be a lawyer. I've seen a car accident and I've heard 12 people give 12 different versions. People are not neutral. They're looking for evidence to disbelieve, not to believe. They're waiting for the church to slip up so they can go, yes, I told you it's not true. That's what they're doing here. They're looking for evidence. Look at it, verse 55, seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They bias. It's the typical human attitude against Jesus. You start telling someone about Jesus. Yeah, but what about Noah? Huh? They don't care about Noah. They don't even want to know about Noah. They don't want to believe in Jesus. Uh, can I tell you about Jesus? Really, have you given Jesus a fair go? Would you like to? Uh, yeah, but what about dinosaurs? Huh? I'm sorry, I don't know about dinosaurs. I've never studied them. I was talking to you about Jesus. Looking for a reason not to believe. 
Yeah, but I know a Christian. You should see what she does. I'm talking about Jesus, not about her. That's how human nature is. It's prejudiced against Jesus. Now, as they go through this trial, nothing sticks. Prosecution fails. What do you do? And I have to say I'm guilty because I've been a prosecutor. What do you do when you've got a horrible case? Basically, you just beg the accused to self-incriminate. And, and it never works, but sometimes it does because some, some of them can be pretty dumb. Um, and usually their lawyer jumps up and says, you don't have to answer that. And they go, no, well, yes, I wouldn't. And then you go, cool, you've just helped my whole case. In fact, that's exactly, oh, I'm going off the point, I'll come back now, but that's what a few good men, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson's all about. In the end, Jack Nicholson loses his temper in court and incriminates himself. Moving on swiftly. And so what they do, so what they do is they can't find evidence against Jesus, so he gets frustrated. And so look what he does. Look at what he does. Verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. Some stood up, bore false witness. We heard him say this, but that didn't even agree. Verse 60. So he's getting frustrated. The high priest stands up in the midst and he asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. This is where the prosecutor is falling apart. So they're thinking, oh, just self-incriminate, please. So again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And at that point, a lawyer would jump up and say, You don't have to answer that. But look at what Jesus does in verse 62. Jesus said, I am. I mean, how much clearer can you get? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I don't know how you can't get that. Jesus is being so clear. I am. I am the Son of God. I am the Christ. You will see me not sitting here being teased and spat and accused by you. You will see me coming in the clouds of heaven. You will see it with your own eyes. Not today. One day you will see it. I'm just telling you what he says. And so what does the high priest do? By the way, the Son of Man, I don't have time, is a title that comes from Daniel about this human divine figure that has all authority. And so look what the high priest does. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his clothes. And here is the most amazing words. What further witnesses do we need? Let me ask you all. What further witnesses do we need? What more evidence do you need to believe Jesus? What further witness do you need? Don't say oh, you're not a Christian because there's not enough evidence. You've got plenty of evidence. Here is a trial. Religious people, by the way, we're talking about 80 or 90 of them. Here is a trial. No further witnesses is necessary. Jesus has self-incriminated. He has said he is the Son of God. So the only thing is to carry on. Look at verse 64. You've heard his blasphemy. Here's the question the Bible asks you. You see, we think we come to the Bible with lots of questions. It's the Bible who asks us questions. What is your decision? What is your decision? What have you decided in your 98 years on earth, in Perth, with all the wisdom and learning you have? What is your decision about Jesus? 
Well, you know what their decision was? They condemned him as deserving death. So Jesus is condemned. The verdict, thanks Julie. Jesus is tried by the religious authorities. The verdict is death. I'm trying to push you to see you only have two options. You will either worship him as God, devote your life to him, or you will say he's worthy of death. And that is, really, you're totally free. That is your decision. Lastly, lastly, Jesus is tried not just by religious authorities, Jesus is tried by the secular authorities. Because we all know we can't trust religion anyway. You know those religious people, always trying to hide something. So what about the government? We can trust them. The most powerful government in all the world. And so that's what happens. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was, <coughs> as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders, scribes, the whole council. They bound Jesus. They led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, Have you no further, uh, sorry, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, they take him to Pilate, who was the governor. We know about Pilate. Don't think this is fantasy. We know a lot about Pontius Pilate outside of the Bible from historical sources. But Pontius Pilate was the governor, and the Jewish people were not allowed to execute anyone because they were under Roman occupation. So they take Jesus to Pontius Pilate, and he asks them, asks Jesus, are you the king of Jews? Do you know why he's asking that? Because Pontius Pilate won't kill anyone for blasphemy. Because who cares if you think you're God? It's none of my business. He's a Roman. There's lots of God. Caesar's God as well. So he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Because that's a political question. And if you do that, you're guilty of treason. And then I can put you to death. I've got, I can definitely put people to death for treason. Because only Caesar is the king of the Jews. So I'm not interested if you think you're the son of God or not. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus brilliantly says, you have said so. If Jesus says no... That wouldn't be true, because he is the king of the Jews. But if Jesus said yes, he would be crucified for treason. And Jesus is not going to die for treason. He's dying for blasphemy, because that's what his claim is. So he says, you have said so. By the way, when religious people appeal to the government, get nervous. When the government and religion get together, Bible-believing Christians are usually in big trouble. But that's off the point. Pay no attention. But here's the thing though. The bottom line is that Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent. Look from verse 6. Now, at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up, began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Now watch, watch, verse 14. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? In other words, the governor says, Innocent. The court has found Jesus innocent. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. 
So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus in brilliant justice, he delivers Jesus over to be crucified, a man who he just said is innocent. Now, we're nearly finished. Jesus is tried by the secular authorities and he's found innocent. Next one. They condemn him to death. Well, that's a sad story. (laughs) What's going on? Tell me you can't see what's going on in verse 6 to verse 15. What's going on? An innocent man is condemned to death. What happens to a guilty man called Barabbas? What happens to him? What happens? Someone say. He goes free. Jesus, the innocent, gets condemned to death. So that a guilty man, Barabbas, goes free. Tell me you can't see it. Isn't that what Christianity is all about? Christianity is about Jesus the innocent dying the death that we deserve. That's what the cup is that we've looked at already. Christianity is about a gigantic swap. Jesus takes your place. Dies the death you should have died because he lived the life you should have lived. That's Christianity. Jesus doing for you what you can't do for yourself. Who wouldn't like that? What kind of person wouldn't love a message like that? What's the only response? And I'm finished. The response is verse 66 to verse 72. Because sandwiched in the middle of this dramatic courtroom scene, Verse 66 to verse 72 is the story about the man Peter. Do you all know Peter's, Peter means rock. Okay, so he has the rock, you know, WWE. What's that fool's name? Yeah, it is the rock, eh? So he has Peter the rock. Big, strong man. He starts off denying Jesus. Let me read it to you quickly. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls, I love this, of the high priest came just a big Christian, scared of a little servant girl. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man was one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a a curse on himself and to swear on my mum's grave. I do not know this man of whom you speak. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. By the way, he fell asleep three times in the garden. And he broke down and wept. Why that story is there? That's the only response to what you've heard this morning. Is to stop being the man and to break down and weep before Jesus. The only response acceptable to him is when we break down and we acknowledge who he is. The Bible says if you harden your neck 
you will be destroyed without remedy. Christians are big Peters who've broken down. Not, not, I'm not talking about becoming wusses, but before Jesus, they're soft and they weep. Has that ever happened to you? Well, ask God that it does before it's too late. I have to go. We're not going to take questions and answers. I'm off to the other church, but why don't I pray and then I'll hand over to Granger.